From New York, this is Democracy Now! I myself wish to reaffirm this with shame and unambiguously humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. During an historic trip across Canada, Pope Francis apologizes for the abuse of indigenous children removed from their homes and sent to church-run residential schools in Canada, where they face psychological, physical, and sexual abuse. More than 4,000 indigenous children died. Unmarked graves are still being found. We go to Canada for the latest. Then to Burma, where the military junta has executed four men imprisoned for opposing last year's coup. If the Burmese military regime uh, but, you know, thinks that um, executing four um, Burmese activists will drive fear down the uh, spines of the Burmese public, they are categorically mistaken. And there is a massive uh, and popular call for stepping up resistance against this uh, uh, regime. We look at the Puerto Rico Status Act, a House bill that would allow residents of Puerto Rico to decide on the island's territorial status. We'll speak to the former San Juan mayor, Carmen Yulín Cruz. Puerto Rico has been a colony of the United States since 1898. This Congress has introduced the Puerto Rico Status Act. The time for decolonization and self-determination is now. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Pope Francis has apologized for the abuse of indigenous children who were separated from their families and sent to church-run residential schools in Canada, where they face psychological, physical and sexual abuse. Pope Francis is on the apology tour since Monday in Muscochise, Alberta, the site of a former residential school. I myself wish to reaffirm this with shame and unambiguously humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. The Pope's apology comes seven years after Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission accused church-run residential schools of taking part in a form of cultural genocide. The commission also determined more than 4,000 indigenous children died from neglect or abuse in residential schools from the late 19th century through the 1940s. Unmarked graves are still being found. We'll have the latest on the Pope's historic apology tour after headlines. In Tunisia, President Kais Saeed has claimed victory in his bid to gain sweeping new powers after winning a constitutional referendum in an election boycotted by most opposition parties. An exit poll showed over 93 percent of votes cast were in favor of changing Tunisia's constitution to grant the president broad executive power with greater control over the parliament and judiciary. But turnout in Monday's election was very low, with fewer than two million people casting votes in a country of over nine million registered voters. Opposition groups said Said is bringing authoritarian rule back to Tunisia after an uprising against poverty and corruption swept aside longtime leader Ben Ali in 2011, inspiring Arab Spring protests across North Africa and the Middle East. 
In Ukraine, Russia's militaries fired missiles at several targets on the Black Sea coast, including in Mykolaiv and the southern port city of Odessa. The attacks came even as Ukrainian officials said they were just days away from implementing a United Nations broker deal to export grain and cooking oil through Black Sea ports in order to help ease global food shortages. In the northern city of Chuhiv, near Kharkiv, rescuers combed through rubble looking for survivors of Russian missile attacks Monday that hit a local school crushed homes and completely flattened the city's house of culture. We're here in the very city center where the house of culture is located. There were no soldiers here. It's simply the house of culture. Now we see what's left of it. The house is completely in ruins. There is no chance of rebuilding it. Russia's state-controlled energy giant has reduced the flow of gas through its main pipeline to Europe. Gazprom said Monday it would slash gas deliveries through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to just 20 percent of normal operating capacity. That prompted the European Union to agree to a deal that grants Brussels the power to compel European Union members to slash gas consumption by up to 15 percent. On Monday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, accused Russia of committing gas blackmail against Europe. In California, at least 3,000 people have been forced to evacuate the fast-moving Oak Fire near Yosemite National Park. As of this morning, the fire had burned nearly 17,000 acres and was just 10 percent contained. Smoke from the massive blaze triggered air quality alerts in the San Francisco Bay Area and other parts of the region. In the Pacific Northwest, forecasters are warning of a new heat wave that could push temperatures in some areas above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. This follows record heat a year ago blamed for the deaths of 800 people across Oregon, Washington State and British Columbia. On Capitol Hill, six congressional staffers were arrested Monday as they held a nonviolent civil disobedience protest inside the office of Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The staffers are demanding Schumer reopen negotiations on a bill to combat the climate crisis after West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin blocked Democrats' latest efforts to pass new funding for green energy programs. This week, 165-plus federal and congressional staffers signed an open letter to President Biden and Chuck Schumer demanding they strip Senator Manchin of his chairmanship of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. They're also demanding President Biden declare a climate emergency and take other urgent actions to curb greenhouse gas emissions. The letter reads in part, quote, even if Democrats control both chambers and the White House again in four years, inaction in this moment will cause an era of record temperatures, extreme drought, sea level rise and other deadly climate disasters. We do not have years to waste. We have little more than a week, they said. President Biden says he's feeling better after testing positive for COVID-19 and expects to be working in person by the end of the week. Biden gave the update as he continued to work by video link Monday. I'm feeling good. My voice is still raspy. Uh, I've had every morning, <coughs> every afternoon, I mean, excuse me, every evening I get a full-blown series of tests, everything from temperature to oxygen, the oxygen in my, in my blood to my pulse to, I mean, just across the board. And so far, everything's good. 
On Monday, Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced they, too, had tested positive for coronavirus. Democrats Tina Smith of Minnesota and Tom Carper of Delaware are also out of the Senate after testing positive last week. Their absences have left Democrats unable to move several pieces of legislation, including a bill protecting the right to marriage equality. This comes as cases of the BA5 coronavirus variant continue to rise across the United States, with some cities including Los Angeles and Seattle, considering reinstating indoor mask mandates. Meanwhile, the CDC is reporting the U.S. has surpassed Spain to become the country with the most known monkeypox infections since an outbreak of the viral disease began earlier this year. The U.S. has reported more than 3,400 confirmed or suspected cases. The White House is reportedly preparing to name a federal monkeypox coordinator in the coming days, while the world World Health Organization has declared a global health emergency around monkeypox. The White House has yet to do this. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has revealed new details about how former President Trump resisted his speechwriter's attempts to have him condemn the assault on the Capitol. A draft speech prepared by White House staffers for the president to deliver January 7th shows Trump's edits in black marker. Trump crossed out the line, quote, I am directing the Department of justice to ensure all lawbreakers are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We must send a clear message, not with mercy, but with justice. Legal consequences must be swift and firm, unquote. Trump also crossed out the phrase, I want to be very clear, you do not represent me, you do not represent our movement, unquote. Finally, Trump edited, if you broke the law, you belong in jail, to instead read, if you broke the law, you will pay. Unquote. In reproductive rights news, dozens of incoming medical students at the University of Michigan walked out of their white coat induction ceremony Sunday protesting the keynote speaker, Dr. Kristen Collier, and her support for laws banning abortion. In related news, thousands of people rallied outside and inside the Indiana State House Monday as lawmakers began a special session to debate a Republican bill that would ban nearly all abortions. Indiana is the first state to hold a special session to consider abortion rights since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last month. This is obstetrician and abortion rights advocate Dr. Amy Caldwell. My primary objective today in testifying is to relay that abortion is common, it is safe, and that all of the proposed restrictions in Senate Bill 1 are unnecessary and harmful. My colleagues are fearful to do their jobs, fearful of being criminalized, and fearful for criminalizing our patients. And here in New York... A man who was forced to plead guilty to theft in connection with the Central Park jogger case has been exonerated. Stephen Lopez was just 15 years old when he was arrested and wrongfully accused of sexually assaulting a white woman, along with five other black and Latinx teenagers who became known as the Central Park Five. At the time, Lopez, whose story is far less known than the rest of the group, pleaded guilty to robbery to avoid a more serious rape charge. Lopez is now 40. He served about three years in prison before his release in the early 1990s. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg announced Lopez's exoneration on Monday. Many uh, largely forgot that there were six who were falsely accused of rape of the Central Park jogger. Today, 
Mr. Lopez joined the other five who had their convictions vacated. What is so striking to me uh, is how young Mr. Lopez was when both he was arrested uh, and then when he pled guilty uh, under extraordinary pressure. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, on his historic trip across Canada, Pope Francis is apologizing for the abuse of indigenous children who were removed from their homes and sent to church-run residential schools where they face psychological, physical, and sexual abuse. Francis made the apology in Musquachies, Alberta the site of a former residential school. I'm here because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is that of asking forgiveness, of telling you once more that I am deeply sorry, sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. I am sorry. I ask forgiveness, in particular for the ways in which many members of the Church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference, in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which culminated in the system of residential schools. I myself wish to reaffirm this with shame and unambiguously, humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. The Pope's apology comes seven years after Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission accused the Catholic Church-run residential school of taking part in a form of cultural genocide. The commission determined more than 4,000 indigenous children died from neglect or abuse in residential schools across Canada. Unmarked graves are still being found. The first residential schools opened in 1883. The last one closed in 1998. During that time, over 150,000 indigenous children were sent away to rid them of their native cultures and languages and integrate them into mainstream Canadian society. This is Tony Alexis, chief of the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation, speaking after the Pope's apology. As soon as the, the, the apology started, People were triggered immediately. You could see it in the audience. You could see it and you could hear it from different messages we were getting as we were sitting there. That it triggered an opening of a wound again. And this wound that has been opened again, we can't just leave it like that. We really have to take the, the steps to make sure that we help heal and recover our people. And this is Evelyn Korkmaz, who spent four years at St. Anne's Indian Residential School in Fort Albany, Ontario. She now helps other survivors of residential schools deal with trauma. It's been a very emotional day for me as a survivor. Um, I had my ups and downs, uh, my hoorays, my disappointments, my wanting more and not getting it. I've waited 50 years for this apology. 
and finally today, I heard it. And um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of my family members, friends, classmates, and members of my community that went to residential school were not able to hear it because they had passed on through suicide, alcohol addiction, suicide, sorry, I said that, uh, and other uh, substance abuse or whatnot uh, because they could not endure or live with the trauma that they endured in these residential schools. To talk more about the Pope's apology tour, his trip across Canada, we're joined by Pamela Palmiter. She is Micmac lawyer, member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in New Brunswick, chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, recently published an op-ed in the Toronto Star headlined, Another Pope's Apology Isn't Enough When Catholic Churches' Cover-Ups and Hypocrisy Continue to This Day. Welcome to Democracy now, uh, Professor Pamela Palmiter. Uh, can you start off by responding to his apology tour, what he has said, what he hasn't said? Well, it was pretty much what I feared, that it would be one of those very carefully worded apologies where the church itself, the organization, doesn't take responsibility for their policies and practices, the cover-ups, knowing that there was sex offenders all over the world, not dealing with the sex offenders, protecting them, and that, in fact, they themselves, the church itself, was the one responsible for all of the crimes that were committed by their Christian members because they issued the, the papal bull, which you know, the doctrine of discovery saying, you know, go forth and and steal all of these lands. So no real acceptance of responsibility on the part of the church. And Pam, uh, you mentioned uh, the the predators. Uh, You've written that of more than 5,000 sexual predators who abused uh, uh, the majority of 150,000 children in the residential schools at a mere fraction have ever faced criminal charges, uh, fewer than 50. Could, could you elaborate on that and and uh, what you would hope uh, would be done? Well, the government spent like over $1.5 million hiring 17 private investigators to identify the perpetrators in these residential schools. We know the Catholic Church represented about 60% of those schools, but other churches ran the other ones. These predators have been allowed to walk free ever since without any monitoring, without any surveillance. And that's my biggest concern because worldwide, where you look at the exact same situations, whether it's in the United States, in Australia, um, in France, they have... They have, even if where they've had inquiries or litigation settlements, they've allowed these sexual predators to walk free and they've gone on to work with children and sexually offend again. So my concern is we have absolutely no idea of how bad it has continued to this day in Canada. And uh, what about this whole issue of uh, reparations? Uh, The New York Times Mm -hmm. reported that the Catholic Church has paid just about a little over a million of 25 million Canadian dollars that it promised to the victims uh, uh, in Canada. Could you uh, what's the situation? Could you talk about the situation with reparations? Well, 
Right. So here's the thing with apologies. You know, you, you have to be really sorry. You have to admit for all of the crimes. You know, then you have to kind of promise not to do it again and take steps to make sure the abuse doesn't happen. And then there's the issue of reparations. And reparations is when you try to make amends. You try to put the person in the situation they would have been, you know, but for your wrongs. And the basics, like they agreed to a certain amount in compensation in the settlement agreement and never paid it. That's not a sign of good faith. The fact that, you know, they they haven't done, um, rescinded the doctrine of discovery, something that was asked for. The fact that they haven't addressed, uh, issued all of the documents. They haven't even released all of the documents that would help Native people identify all of these unmarked graves, who's in those graves, how they died, who's responsible. Those documents haven't been released, nor have they released all of the artifacts that that were stolen during that period. So, you know, apologies are just words when you are still today um, not living up to your legal or moral obligations. Pam Palmiter, can you Talk about what prompted this tour. And also, um, as he goes across Canada um, to make these apologies, um, I think he is moving on to Iokaluit. And if you can tell us the significance of this, I don't know if he's mentioned sexual abuse. Yeah. No, he hasn't. And that's the other thing. When you apologize, you have to say, here's what I did. And I see the harms that it caused you. No mention of sexual abuse, no mention of the cover-ups, no mention of, you know, the, the worldwide involvement in allowing their priests and clergy and staff and everyone associated with the Catholic Church to continue to go on and sexually abuse children. Absolutely no acknowledgement of that or the doctrine of discovery, which is the basis of the genocide in both Canada and the United States. So it's not really an apology if you haven't acknowledged the full scope of what you've done. And some of the worst things that they did, aside from killing children, was sexual abuse that has gone on to haunt these children for the rest of their lives, for those who did survive. And the issue of reparations, if you can talk more about that, um, who is greeting the Pope as he makes his way across Canada? Um, what nations, uh, what First Nations, and are they raising these issues with him? Well, see, that's the thing. So in Canada, we have First Nations, Inuit and Métis. Inuit are in the north. First Nations are like all over Canada and, and Métis are spread out. Oh, I mean, we have 634 First Nations representing a significant number of nations. These were primarily Indian residential schools, although Inuit and Métis were impacted. There is a very, very, very small number of individual chiefs or regional chiefs or, you know, so-called dignitaries or members of Native organizations, along with some survivors that are meeting, you know, the Pope and or and or organizing it. The vast majority have had no say in it. And in fact, the national chief of the Assembly of First Nations has already said in the media that, you know, women weren't involved in this and she wasn't uh, permitted to be involved in this. So you, you can imagine um, just how how upsetting it is for a large number of people who don't have a say, who don't get to say, you know, here's what you need to be saying, here's what you need to be doing, which 
you know, which leaves this empty apology. And you mentioned, uh, Pam, that the uh, the Catholic Church was responsible for about half of these uh, of these schools. What about the other Christian churches? What has been their response to the uh, now for the unfolding revelations uh, uh, over the past several years of their role uh, 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 in these atrocities? Well, the Catholic Church is responsible for the majority, so about 60%. But yes, all, you know, all of the other churches also responsible. They've each issued apologies, you know, over the years for different things. Um, but you don't see a real significant act of, of contrition or penitence or any of those things that they claim. Things like, you know, um, making sure that there is money aside from the compensation agreement to help restore languages, to help provide healing for all of the people who were traumatized, to help support all of those who need the the funding and the legal supports to identify their children in unmarked graves and return them back to their communities. It's, it's things like that, or returning the lands that were stolen for the purposes of the church. Like, keep in mind, the Catholic Church and other churches often, you know, buy and sell lands, lease lands, those kinds of things, try to raise money. Um, those lands should be going back to First Nations. Imagine those lands were taken to do commit such horrible atrocities. So I don't see very sincere, wholesome apologies and reparations on the part of all of these churches. But I think in terms of, again, in a comparison, the Catholic Church is far worse. You know, the, the papal bulls, the large numbers, the world worldwide influence, all of that. And keep in mind, the Catholic Church didn't just impact residential school survivors. They're the responsible for the death of millions in Canada and the U.S. from the Indigenous community and a whole bunch of other atrocities outside of the residential school process. And, and you've uh, mentioned a couple of times the uh, the doctrine of discovery for a mm -hmm. lot of young people who are not familiar with mm -hmm. that, because obviously that had a big impact, not just in in, uh, in, uh, in North America, but in Latin America as well uh, mm -hmm. during the colonial period. Could you, uh, could you explain the doctrine of discovery? Yeah, in its simplest terms, it basically gave um, power, the so-called power to the European uh, nations to go forth and conquer any lands where Christians don't inhabit, you know, lands that were so-called terra nullius, where no one is living, a no man's land, so to speak. But in fact, we know um, it wasn't just an authority to go forth and take those lands. It was to use, you know, whatever force necessary to rid the lands of any non-Christians. And, and you saw that all over North and South America. Millions and millions upon millions were killed tortured, abused, exploited, put into slavery, and not just in the old days. We're, we're talking over hundreds of years, and the abuse, the physical abuse, the exploitation, the sexual abuse continues today. So while we talk about, you know, the doctrine of discovery and all of the abuse as though it's like in the long ago past, it's still having implications today, which is why so many want the church to officially rescind, repeal, revoke, whatever they need to do, the doctrine of discovery, and start accepting responsibility for what's happening in the here and now. 
As we begin to wrap up, Pamela Palmiter, if you can give us context globally also for mm-hmm. um, Pope's apologies, whether we're talking about Australia, the United States, or your country, Canada. Right. Well, the, you know, different popes have given different apologies all around the world, North and South America, European countries, for the atrocities, the violence, physical abuse, uh, you name it. And have tried to, you know, make these very wide-ranging general apologies. But what you see the church as the organization doing is fighting against settlement agreements. In fact, in the United States, you have the church uh, who has... Uh, church and molestation liability insurance. I mean, imagine knowing that you're so bad that you have molestation insurance. And so now high-powered law firms actually filing countersuits against mothers for failing to protect their children against, you know, sexual predator priests. So there's a lot of seedy things that are happening, the destruction of documents, the refusal to hand over documents, all of this intimidation, the refusal to hold anyone to account. And this is globally, worldwide, including here in North America. So the actions of the church today are are still terrible. So when you see all of the pomp and circumstance and, and what looks great around the Pope apologizing, keep in mind, He's the head of an organization that is fighting the victims of all of the abuse. We want to thank you for being with us, Pamela Palmiter, McMack lawyer, member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in New Brunswick, chair in Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. We'll link to your piece in the Toronto Star, headlined, Another Pope's Apology Isn't Enough When Catholic Church's Cover-Ups and Hypocrisy Continue to This Day. She's speaking to us from Toronto. Next, we go to Burma where the military junta has executed four men imprisoned for opposing last year's coup. Stay with us. Locations, abusive relations, 150 celebrations, common section hating, debating, truth and reconciliation fading, dividing and shading. But we still here, we still here, we still here. Missing brother, missing mother, missing goddess. Say it again, no clean water. But we still here, we still here. The message is clear, they wanted us to disappear, but we still here. The message is clear, they wanted us to disappear, but we still here, we still here. The father in sight, women warrior fight. I wanna break the cycle in the circle, non-verbal, nocturnal, no dress rehearsal. I hear by a century, awaken the spirit, be fearless and clear it, no limit. I spit it, I risk it, I hit it, it's written, never bitten, archived for my descendants. Important to make a presence, representations at all levels. We are all rebels sent from the heavens at 11 11. So meet me at 7 11 to dismantle depression, to gather, to master and shatter the system. I know what's missing. I see the gaps. I have the maps to take it back. Come on. Stolen locations, abusive relations, 150 celebrations, common section hating, debating, truth and reconciliation fading, divided and shading. Still, still here, here by the indigenous here. activist and hip-hop artist JB, the First Lady. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. 
We turn now to Burma, where there is growing outrage after the military junta executed four men Saturday who'd been jailed for opposing last year's military coup. In Burma's largest city, Rangoon, protesters marched down the streets with a banner reading, We will never be frightened, and called out the names of the executed activists. The execution of the four pro-democracy activists who were sentenced to death in secretive trials marks the first executions in Burma in over 30 years. Cha Min Yu was the prominent pro-democracy activist, also known as Ko Jimmy. He was a student leader in 1988 uprising, spent many years as a political prisoner. Also executed was Pew Zayatah, a former rapper who was a founding member of Generation Wave, an anti-military youth-led movement, and became a lawmaker in Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy. The two other men executed Saturday were Hla Myo Ong and Ong Thurza. The Assistance Association of Political Prisoners says they were involved in the resistance protest movement since the 2021 coup, like many other Burmese. On Monday, the U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price responded to the executions. We underscore that uh, with the escalating violence with these uh, horrific atrocities that the junta has carried out, uh, there can be no business as usual with this uh, regime. We urge all countries to ban the sale of military equipment to Burma, to refrain from lending uh, the regime any degree of international credibility. Uh, and we call on ASEAN to maintain its important precedent, uh, only allowing Burmese non-political representation uh, at regional events. For more, we go to London to speak with Mang Zarni, exiled Burmese scholar, dissident and human rights activist, co-founder of the Forces of Renewal for Southeast Asia, or 4C. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Zarni. Our condolences to you and so many who knew uh, one or more of the four people executed Saturday. Can you tell us who they were? And were you shocked by this act of the first time, the first execution uh, of political prisoners in, what, some 30 years in Burma. Thank you, Amy. Um, you know, the uh, two of the uh, executed, uh, I met them and I consider them my uh, younger comrades. Uh, you know, the <clears throat> Jimmy or Joe Minyu had been involved uh, since 1988 when he was uh, uh, only 19 years old. And Zayato is in his uh, mid-40s uh, uh, and a well-known hip-hop hard artist and a committed uh, uh, supporter of Aung San Suu Kyi's leadership in NLD. We had differences of opinion about her leadership or NLD, but nonetheless, uh, you know, I felt the pain. Uh, also, the other two were younger generation uh, comrade brothers. Uh, they were accused of, uh, you know, killing uh, the, someone who was uh, credibly accused of uh, being a informer. For the military, uh, so these are uh, you know the four dissidents that were uh, barbarically executed on Saturday. Uh, the families have not been uh, you know uh, given any indication 
uh, in what manners they were executed or, you know, not that if they were cremated, not the ashes. Right. So the military is very afraid of these four becoming martyrs for the resistance and inspire new wave of, uh, uh, you know, uh, resistors. Um, was I shocked? No, not at all. You know, I think, like, of course, like uh, these four, um, you know, uh, uh, young or not so young dissidents were executed. And so they had, um, you know, p- personal stories that we knew. So it, it piqued uh, the um, interest of the media and others. So we are looking at essentially uh, the genocidal regime that is uh, credibly accused of and that is facing a genocide case at the International Court of Justice. And so just last Friday, as you know, the ICJ, the United Nations Principal Judicial Organ, has ruled that, um, you know, the genocide case um, the filed by uh, Gambia against uh, the state of Myanmar will proceed. And so this is a regime that has committed every single grave um, you know, crime in international law that has ever been established and encoded in the law books. And so, you know, I think we should uh, realize that, uh, you know, when the international community continues with the business as usual policy, including the United States, United Kingdom, UK, Canada, uh, the maintaining a high level diplomatic ties, uh, allowing, um, you know, oil and other uh, you know, natural resource extractive industries to, to continue to be in partnership with the regime. The regime is emboldened. So I would hold the international community, uh, you know, accountable for its culpability, you know, despite all these empty condemnations from net price or, you know, the uh, congressional leaders and uh, UN, uh, the, you know, officials, uh, human rights commissions, you know, uh, the, the uh, European Union and whatnot. Well, uh, uh, Mong Zarni, could you be more specific in terms of the the contradiction between the words that are espoused by the U.S. government and other uh, uh, Western leaders and what their actual practice has been? Could you give us some specifics on that in terms of what companies and and industries are still benefiting from economic ties and political ties with uh, the Burmese junta? Yes, uh, the you know, the. Uh, all these high street, um, you know, f- uh, fashion brands, uh, Zara and others, and you know, textile apparel industries, uh, you know, they are they are still uh, producing and sourcing their materials in Burma, uh, the, in a country that had have, a, a, you know, zero or uh, no, um, you know, labor rights protections, uh, labor, um, you know, laws uh, in place or enforced. Uh, the uh, you know Chevron of the United States uh, was grandfather in when Unicol uh, you know was swallowed up by California-based uh, Chevron. Uh, it's in partnership with the uh, the Burmese uh, military, uh, control the Myanmar gas and oil, and um, all, you know th- there are uh, there are a long list of um, European, Japan, Australian, uh, the Americans, and even Canadian. Uh, you know, corporate interests operating on the ground 
while the uh, politicians and uh, you know uh, uh, the uh, foreign uh, affairs or State Department officials come up with these uh, grandiose uh, condemnations, uh, grandstanding that they are doing something moral, ethical, and principle. If you compare the uh, uh, the, the United States, um, you know, response to Vladimir Putin's illegal and um, you know immoral invasion of Ukraine and the uh, Biden's uh, you know uh, response to uh, the the Burmese regime's uh, uh, violations of all norms uh, internationally and um, uh, all um, the criminal and humanitarian law you will see a black and white difference you know that the Biden has frozen one billion U.S. dollar held in the U.S. accounts that belong to the people of Myanmar, the state of Myanmar. Uh, the military is uh, uh, widely, domestically unaccepted and considered illegitimate. And uh, even the Association of Southeast Asian Nation refuses to seat any political representative, let alone the uh, chief of staff, Mayorline, the head of the regime. And so Biden you know, poured like, you know, nearly 50 billion U.S. dollars to defend Ukraine and, and support Ukrainian resistance. The Burmese, uh, you know, resistance uh, movement is selling, you know, engage in big sales and, you know, the uh, uh, concerts abroad to raise like uh, peanuts, uh, se- you know, mil- several million dollars or 60, 50,000 U.S. dollars to support their own resistance back home. Biden should be unfreezing their one billion U.S. dollar and making it available to support the Burmese uh, resistance. We want to thank you very much, Mang Zarni, for being with us, Burmese scholar, dissident, human rights activist, co-founder of the Forces of Renewal for Southeast Asia, FORSI, a grassroots network of pro-democracy scholars and human rights activists across Southeast Asia. Next up, we're going to look at the Puerto Rico Status Act, a House bill that would allow residents of Puerto Rico to decide on the island's territorial status. We'll speak with the former mayor of San Juan. But as we go to break, this is Satin Chin, which which means beginning. It was the title track to an album by the Burmese hip-hop group Acid, co-founded by the artist and pro-democracy activist-turned-legislator Pusea who was executed Saturday by Burma's military junta, along with three others, prompting international outrage.
Again, that song beginning uh, by the Burmese hip-hop group Acid, co-founded by the artist and pro-democracy activist-turned-legislator Pew Zayat Hall, who was executed by the Burmese regime on Saturday, the regime that took power in a coup last year. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn to Puerto Rico, the House Natural Resources Committee in Washington has advanced the Puerto Rico Status Act, a bill that would allow residents of Puerto Rico to decide on the island's territorial status. The bill, for the first time, acknowledges the need to end Puerto Rico's colonial status by excluding the current Commonwealth option, and offers instead a referendum of the Puerto Rican people on the three choices historically recognized by the United Nations as a true decolonization process—independence, statehood, or free association with sovereignty for Puerto Rico. It also commits Congress for the first time to abide by the results of that referendum. However, the bill is facing opposition from many Puerto Rican groups who've called for public hearings on the legislation and clarification on several key provisions having to do with the language and citizenship status of the island's residents under independence or free association. We go now to Puerto Rico, where we're joined by Carmen Yulín Cruz, former mayor of San Juan. She recently wrote a letter to House Majority— um, to the to Steny Hoyer, outlining her concerns over the bill. Welcome to Democracy Now. Uh, can you start off by just responding to what took place in Washington around Puerto Rico? Yes. First of all, thank you for having me, Amy and Juan. Um, I, I just want to touch upon very quickly. Uh, you had one of the leaders of uh, one of the Native American uh, nations with you a few minutes ago. And, and if you look at the process of decolonization and self-determination, we're all looking for the same thing. We're looking for justice. We're looking for our national identity to be respected. And we're also um, looking for our voices to be heard. So, so this is a thread of colonization that runs, runs through various areas of the United States. Last, and this is, and this is important, Amy, the time frame for this bill. Last July 15th, uh, the bill was finally introduced. This was a bill that has never been formally um, translated into Spanish. So many Puerto Ricans who are not bilingual are unable to read and make a judgment for themselves. And, and then um, last week, there was a markup hearing. This is not a um, formal hearing. This is not a hearing, again, where people that only speak Spanish in Puerto Rico would have had uh, simultaneous translation given to them for them to be able to have the facts. You know, one of the issues of, of pursuing your happiness is can you really pursue your happiness and have freedom as the founding fathers wanted if you do not have all the details uh, of what is going on. So I, I wrote a letter to uh, Congressman Steny Hoyer uh, saying that the process, even though we recognize it's a step in the right direction, it moves in the right direction, um, it has some very big flaws that make it undemocratic and, and frankly, un-American. Uh, one of the things is, uh, for example, with statehood, it doesn't really define what statehood is. It says statehood would be the same as with other states. However, one of the bills that, uh, that of the amendments that we would have wanted to introduce uh, would be, could Puerto Rico maintain its own political 
its own uh, Olympic uh, team. We know, though, that that's impossible. But pro-stater defenders in Puerto Rico keep telling Puerto Ricans that we will maintain our own Olympic team. I don't see Texas, New York, California having their own teams. Why would Puerto Rico be treated different? It, it almost seems like pro-staterers um, are looking here in Puerto Rico to uh, dish out the theory of separate but equal, meaning they want Puerto Rico to be a state, but they want Spanish to be spoken here. For example, would Spanish be the language where we teach our children on public schools and English as a second language as we teach it right now? Even though the Constitution doesn't say that English is the uh, official language of the U.S., and even though there are many languages spoken in the U.S., you, Amy and Juan, we all know that English is the predominant language and the language mostly used by government. But again, state orders keep telling, don't worry, we will continue to have everything done in Spanish and in the government. So, so those are things that really need to be clarified. Puerto Ricans need to know that they will pay federal taxes and how much federal taxes will be paid. None of those things are, are existent in this bill. For free association, there is a major flaw, which is illegal currently in the United States. As you know, Puerto Ricans were made citizens of the U.S. in 1917, um, coincidentally enough, to draft us into World War I. And then in 1941, we became U.S. citizens by birth. So if my daughter, who was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, gives birth in Spain, she would just simply go to the American embassy and, and fill out a paper and that's it. So what Congress is saying in this bill is that you need two parents. Um, I would have never thought I would have said, uh, used Ted Cruz as an example of anything, uh, but anything that is rotten and not, not good. Uh, with people that say that they're going to serve. But Ted Cruz is a prime example. Ted Cruz, his mother is from the U.S., but he was born in Canada. So his mother went and just wrote him up, and that's it. So we want uh, equality under the law, uh, which is an American, very American uh, thing, concept, to treat us the same. We shouldn't be treated differently when it comes to the U.S. citizenship which was, again, imposed on Puerto Ricans. And number three, um, I also called for the, the independence aspect of it. The, the bill says you, you can be independent if the people choose it. You can draft your own constitution. But here you need to have A, B, C, D, or E. And, and I wish I could see your faces when I say this. Just imagine the founding fathers getting a letter from England saying, all right, you know, you, you've raised enough hell. We're going to give you your independence, uh, which you have a right to anyway. But, you know, your constitution needs to have A, B, C, and D. Uh, it, is, it is an unwarranted um, ask of the United States if Puerto Rico decides to be independent. So, so the things that we wanted is things that are just very simple. One, they should be hearings. 124 years of colonialism should not be rushed without hearings, hearings that are formal hearings accessible in Spanish with dual translation, because, again, most people in Puerto Rico do not speak Spanish, do not speak English in a manner that they could 
understand the technicalities and the phraseology that is used uh, in the bill. And, and number three, we want amendments to be allowed. If we're going to have a non-democratic process or a non-preferred process, which is which was the um, Constitutional Assembly, we should honestly be able to uh, on the floor. And then we call on Steny Hoyer to ask the Rules Committee to do this, to allow allow uh, for uh, just a simple, simple um, amendment and saying, hey, will Puerto Ricans be able to keep their Olympic team? And then we will just see how everyone votes and people will be able to vote with the clarity of what each one of the choices means, not only in the present, but in the future for all of us. Well, uh, Carmen Julian Cruz, I wanted to ask you in terms of um, uh, Raul Grijalva, who's uh, chaired the Natural Resources Committee and and was uh, 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 has said that uh, there's been many uh, years and years of hearings on Puerto Rico. He held hero- hearings on the island himself, and that if if this Congress is going to act before a new election, uh, this has to bill has to move forward. Some people say that there is definitely progress. It recognizes that Puerto Rico is currently mm-hmm. a colony. It, it provides for the first time uh, a free association as a, a potential choice. Uh, and um, and it commits Congress to uh, abide by whatever the Puerto Rican people decide. So what do you say to those who say, hey, if if there's going to some, something's going to happen in, in this Congress, it needs to happen now. Well, there is definitely progress. And and I'm the first one to say that uh, Raul Grijalva and India Velasquez have, have really pushed this and, and moved forward. Uh, and it was it is an important thing to move forward. Uh, we all have to remember that after Donald Trump's fiasco and the more than 3,000 deaths after Hurricane Maria because of his lack of interest in saving our lives and his inability to do his job, Puerto Rico became kind of the black eye on America's face internationally. And and after that, Americans and, and Americans in Congress and all around have been trying to redirect the attention and saying, no, no, we're, we're, we don't treat Puerto Ricans anymore like Donald Trump treated them, right? We have a saying in Spanish that the disease is, is not in, in the pillow, it's, it's in the person that is deceased. It's really a bad translation. Uh, uh, but la enfermedad no está en la sabana, está en el enfermo. So it is a progress. But progress also has to do with the right and the freedom to choose. And the question is, do you have freedom to choose when all the details are not there, when they're not telling you exactly what annexation, assimilation and statehood would be like when when the law is not being applied and free association and we are being uh, not given the the treatment that the rule of law actually allows for all citizens of the U.S. And when you're imposing Uh, ridiculous aspirations of what the constitution of a new free country would be. So there's no no immediate rush. One of the things that can happen, and and, and Juan, let let me just give you um, this small correction, if I may. Uh, Raul Grijalva, when I was mayor, held a listening session in, in San Juan and held another listening session. But bill, the bill, the actual bill that was submitted has not been officially transmitted and there are no no um, actual and, and um, 
let, let me let me say it this way. Official. There is no official hearing that took place in Congress. What does that allow? It allows you to have documents on file. Uh, for example, the letter to Steny Hoyer that I wrote cannot be on file because it was a markup hearing. The letter that Melissa Marquiverita wrote to uh, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is not on file because of it was not a hearing. So one of the things that we're asking is if Congress is going to impose a process, which is this plebiscite, which Grant you, it's a step forward, but it's not everything we would have liked. We would have liked the Constitutional Assembly where all voices could have been could have been heard. But if that is the case, then let us at least have the opportunity right now. Steny Hoyer has that in, in his power. Just talk to the Rules Committee and say amendments will be allowed and just have a couple of hearings. And then let's vote maybe in September when the Congress reconvenes again. So, so there is... Uh, a little time. I understand uh, the the need for this to be solved. What I honestly and many of us do not understand is the rush to do it and in doing so not allowing the Puerto Rican people to have all the information to exercise their freedom to choose. And Carmen Julian, we only have about a, a minute, a minute or so left, but I wanted to ask you that there's a while these debates are going on in Washington, there continues to be protest movements in Puerto Rico around mm -hmm. the issue of energy and the role of Luma Energy. We're heading into another uh, hurricane season. And I'm wondering your thoughts about what is happening in terms of the energy grid uh, in Puerto Rico. Well, Luma is a disgrace. We have had in Puerto Rico in one year since Luma has been here, seven increases on the electrical power, seven increases. We now pay the most um, expensive electrical power in all of Puerto Rico. And it, it's, it's, I like the word in English because it's power, right? And we're talking about the Puerto Rican people are trying to exercise their power to have a governor who's a dino. He's a Democrat in name only. Uh, he presents himself as a Democrat in the United States. But, you know, he believes in everything that the Republicans believe. And one of it, it's privatizing essential services like Luma. So Luma must, must, has to go. I opposed it from the beginning. I was called a socialist. Now, drones of people are taking to do every day. The electrical power in Puerto Rico keeps continuously. Two, three times a week, we lose electrical power in different areas of Puerto Rico. And as you say, we are in the current hurricane season. The grid is not where it needs to be because of privatization. The Puerto Rican government gives $750 million. Carmen Yulene Cruz, we're losing you, but do you think the contract should be ended with Luma? Definitely. It should have never begun, and it needs to end now. Carmen Yulín Cruz, we want to thank you for being with us, former mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Weissman Fellow at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. We will also do an interview with Carmen Yulín Cruz in Spanish, and it will appear at democracynow.org en español. That does it for our show, Democracy Now!, produced with Renee Faust-Meifberg. Dina Geister, Masaya Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlon. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe.